You are listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. As bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, as yet when there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. I do hate those. I do not hate those who hate you, O Lord. And do I not loathe those who rise against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And this is the word of the Lord. So we're going to talk about this text. I, I love this text. It's a famous psalm, obviously, but, but I, want, I want to give us a, a little bit of just kind of a template for how we're going to engage this because we don't normally make Psalms, kind of the main meat text of what we're going to digest. And so I want to put us in some context of kind of how do we address a psalm as a genre, and then we're going to walk through kind of some of the movements of the psalm, and that'll lead us to just just a couple little historical and cultural contextual things that we're going to pick out. But, but all of that, I think, is going to bring us to a truth that Jesus has for us today. I think it's going to put, put fresh light and put some perspective on that famous story of Jesus in John 4. And ultimately, we're going to end out our time with uh, Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. And I think it's going to be good for us today. So the first thing we need to talk about is what is a psalm? Now, if you've been in church a long time, you, this probably some of this is going to seem basic, but I really want to make sure we're on the same page on this. So a psalm is a piece of poetry in the scripture. It's the, the book of the psalms is essentially a hymnal. It's a collection of songs, worship songs that were used by God's people for thousands of years and in fact are still used today in Christian worship around the world, literally just as the worship time, just bring up some music, sing through some psalms. It's, it's a normal historical part of Christian worship. God has preserved these praise and worship songs for his people. And if you know anything about just music and hymnology, theologians often say, if you want the best picture of a group of people's theology, look at their music, because music teaches theology in a way that lecture and study just can't. 
Music engages our brain more thoroughly than reading, studying, or listening. It engages a larger part of our brain and it sinks into us in a deeper way. How many of you guys have, if you grew up in church, say you have songs from VBS or Sunday school that are just locked into your brain forever and for eternity, right? It's because the theology of song, it just soaks into your bones. You know, my, my, my grandma uh, died of dementia several years ago, and up until the last day, you took her to church, and if they busted out of him, she would just get going. Because it, it had worked its way into her person. It's why today, the Methodist church is so controlling about what songs they allow to be sung in their services. They have a yes and a no list because the Methodists have a deep-rooted history of hymnology, and they're really careful about really discerning as songs come out from around the church, is this in line with our theological convictions? And they put like the nicks on certain like popular worship songs to be sung or not sung in their churches. Theology is taught through music in powerful ways. The Psalms, if you ever study them, the Psalms are striking. They, they cut and they cut deep. They, they elicit emotion within you. You feel the Psalms. Some of the Psalms can easily draw you to tears, can easily draw you to worship. They are powerful. They are striking. They're poetry. And this is the thing we have to talk about before we talk about the text. Because poetry is not exactly in vogue in our culture. We don't read, we don't talk a lot about a lot of poetry. We certainly don't write a lot of poetry in our culture. And and the way you engage poetry is different than the way you engage any other genre of text. Let me give you an example. I'm going to read to you the first stanza of one of my favorite, or the first little section of one of my favorite poems. If you've known me for any number of years, you've probably heard me reference this poem because I like it. It's called The Hound of Heaven by Francis Thompson. And the first movement of it says this. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind in the midst of mine own tears. I hid from him under running laughter. Up vista hopes I sped and shot and precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed and followed and followed after, but with an unhurried chase and with an unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic insistency. These feet, they beat in a voice it beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee, though who betrayest me. It's a beautiful poem. It's actually loosely based on this psalm. Uh, Francis Thompson was, a, was an English poet who, who died of uh, opium use, destroyed his body, um, and wrote this poem in the, in the last months of his life and used this psalm as an analogy for his own fleeing from God. And the, the running image of the poem is he compares God to a bloodhound on the scent. And he is a convict running and trying to escape. And God keeps after him and keeps a pace and chases him until he finally catches him and he surrenders and receives salvation. It's a really, really powerful poem. But how silly would it be if I read that to you and said, 
Now, obviously, this work is of very little practical help to the reader. It's utter nonsense. We all know that minds are not, in fact, labyrinths. They're simply gray matter. And uh, arches, time is not made of physical arches. The author of this poem does not have an understanding of basic spatial awareness, much less the propensities of humans for travel. There's nothing of benefit in this poem. You would laugh at that and say, that's dumb. You don't understand poetry. The imagery is what makes it powerful. The similes, the metaphors, the striking pieces, that's what makes it so evocative. If you try and take it literally, you miss the point of it. And so we have to be really careful when we read the Psalms because we've been trained in our good, reformed, evangelical minds to view the Scriptures really mechanically and really methodically and to pick apart language and nuance and culture. And all those skills are really important, but we have have to start with genre. And the genre of the Psalms is poetry. And so the imagery, the language of the Psalms are intentionally extreme and sharp and striking. And they're meant to evoke feeling in you. And we have to allow the Psalm to be that way. We have to allow the Psalm to be how God actually made it so that we can hear what he has for us in it. Does that make sense? So we're going to walk through this psalm movement by movement. The first movement is verses 1 through 6. And what you see in here, and I'll I'll reread it really briefly, and then I'll just give a couple points. We'll we'll move through this quickly. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. The image the psalmist gives us here is of this realization of the power and knowledge of God. It's as if there is this epiphany where the psalmist says, God, you know me. Like, you really know me. Like, you don't just know about me. You know me intimately. You know every thought. You know every word before I say it. You know where I'm going and where I've come from. You you are all around me. And the bigness of this, if we are honest, when we read a text like this and we allow it to hit us, we realize that this realization simultaneously strikes awe in us and also fear right? Do you you feel that? The the knowledge of God's intimate connection to you? If I'm being honest with you, there's some things I would rather God not know about my heart and my mind and my thoughts and my words and my intentions and my destinations, right? And yet the psalmist says, you know everything about me. You know everything. This is This is too much for me. Do you see that in verse 6? This is too much for me. There's this mixture here in the word that that we get translated as wonder. There's this mixture here of just going, wow. But also going, wow. This is too much. And so we see initially, as soon as we step into this, 
hopefully, this immediately relatable feeling. How amazing is it? How magnificent is it that our God is that big and that powerful that nothing is hidden from Him? And how terrifying is it that your God knows every inch of you? Right? And then he moves on in the second movement. This is verses 7 through 12. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day for darkness is as light to you. And we see this again, this interesting mixture of awe and worship and a little bit of timidity, where he goes, I can't get away from you. I, there's nothing I can do to hide from you. Anywhere I go, if I, if I waltz up to heaven, you're right there and you took me there. And if I go down into the darkest, most shameful, most secret depths, you're right there and you see as bright as day and none of it confuses you. That's intense. It reminds me of the words of Jesus in John chapter 3, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people of darkness rather than the light their works were evil. Right? This, this idea that, man, I can't get away from you. It does not matter. It does not matter how deep I sink. You see it as clear as day. And again, there's this mixture of awe and trepidation. And the third movement we see here starting in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, as when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. There's a turning point in the, in the nuance of the language here. As, as the psalmist moves from the epiphany to, oh my goodness, God, you know everything about me, to, to kind of like the little bit of like, I can't get away from you no matter what I do. And then it's as if there is a second realization here and the psalmist says, well, of course, you're my maker. You created me. You designed me. You formed me. You made life for me. Of course. You know everything about me. It's almost as if the his submission to God as his creator flips this switch for him where, where a few moments ago the, the vastness of God's knowledge 
invoked awe and fear, and now he says, how precious to me are your thoughts. They're still just as vast. They're still just as incomprehensible. They're still more than the sand. And yet they're precious. All of a sudden, God's intimate knowledge creates creates this sense of, of safety. Creates this sense of longing, this sense of worship, this sense of joy. Oh, of course you know me. Of course I can't escape you. You are my creator. You made me. You set this whole thing up. That's wonderful. It's a strange switch, right? And we're going we're to come back to that thought, but let's, let's, let's finish this out. In the fourth movement, starting in verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Dang! (laughs) That feels like this abrupt switch to us as this kind of modern Western readers, but the the, the progression here actually makes a ton of sense. What, What we see in this section is essentially this. The psalmist has moved from awe and trepidation and a little bit of fear to all of a sudden realization and gratitude and praise and safety and joy. And now all of a sudden he says, Essentially, in this section, God, I am passionate about what you were passionate about. If you are my creator and you do these things for me, if you follow me and know me and and you make a way for me and you do all these things as my creator, then I am going to be for you. And the things you hate, I'm going to hate. And the people who rise up against you, I'm going to stand against that. It's, it's strong language that doesn't necessarily strike us culturally now, right? But essentially what the psalmist is saying here in this, in this second to last movement is, God, I am on your team. If, if this is who you are and this is how you engage the world, then I'm all in. I'm all in. Whatever you want. And then it ends out in the last movement, in these last two verses. Search me, O God. And know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. I love this closing to the psalm because of how it contrasts with the opening of the psalm. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. Right? He starts with this realization where he goes, Oh my goodness, you know everything about me. You know all the things I don't want you to know. And as he's walked through this progression of awe and worship and realization and and dedication to, to this God, he ends by inviting the thing that started the entire thought process. God, search me. Know me. Look, look at my ways. If there is anything in me, that is not of you. Guide me, change me, lead me. All of a sudden, God's intimate knowledge of the psalmist 
is no longer cause for concern, but it is cause for celebration. Know me. Change me. Guide me. Make me more like you. Lead me in the way everlasting. Beloved, there is there is fire in this. There is fire in this. Essentially, the progression we see in this psalm, and there's a million nuances to this that we could spend months talking about, but the big picture of this psalm, the progression is essentially this. Wow, God, you are way more knowledgeable and powerful than I thought, and I don't know what I think about that. I can't get away from you. You know everything about me. I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with this, but that makes sense. You are my creator. You did make me. You did form me. You did set this thing that my life is up from the beginning. Man, thank you. Thank you for doing that. I, I, I want to be a part of what you're doing. In fact, yeah, know me and search me and see all of me and, and fish out of me what you don't want there and lead me in the way you want me to go. Do you see this progression? Do you, can you kind of follow this in the text? How cool is that, right? That that's a worship song? <laughs> I want to I wanna step backward here to the, this, the center movement. This, 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 where he discusses creation, how this kind of becomes the shifting point for the poem. And we're going we're gonna to pull out some thoughts here. There's something about the, the realization that God is creator that shifts the tone of the psalm and shifts kind of the tone of the language of the psalmist. And so when we think about God as creator, I'm going to read for us a text from Genesis 1 where, where, where the scripture actually records God's act of creation over humanity. It's in, in verses, verse 26 of the first chapter of Genesis. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I want to grab this phrase here, in his own image. I know that's a churchy phrase that if you spent time in church, you've heard that before, right? That humanity is made in the image of God. But I want to talk about that because that is a key phrase that's going to fuel what we're actually talking about today. You see, humanity is set apart from the rest of the creation by this phrase, that God placed his image in humanity. And you ask, what does that actually mean? What does it mean that the image of God is in us? That is almost a nonsensical phrase. And this doesn't fully explain it, but I'm going to give you a little analogy that I think will serve our purposes today. Uh, if, if you, how many of you have family photos somewhere in your house, like actual printed ones, not your phone ones, right? I, I know, those are becoming rarer and rarer. But we have these things, right? I have, you know, we, have, we have printed photos of Millie as, as a, as a little, little bitty one. And those things are precious, right? Now, ultimately, a family picture is really just wood pulp and ink, right? 
There's actually nothing that sets it apart from the junk mail you get in your mailbox every day. So why is one framed on your wall and the other one goes straight to the trash can? They're both wood pulp and ink. Well, one has an image stamped on it. And the image is precious. Right? One has an image inherent like into it and that doesn't make it cease to be wood pulp and ink and yet somehow that image makes that wood pulp and ink precious and we keep family photos sometimes for generations and sometimes photos when they get chewed up or torn or spilled on they become even more precious and we protect them even more right even though it's just wood pulp and ink and yet it's precious because there's an image on it. An image makes something like something else. If you look at a picture of my daughter, it's like my daughter. It's not her. You can't have a conversation with it. It won't scream at you if you turn off Nickelodeon. (laughs) It's like her, but it's not her. And that likeness makes it precious to me. So I put it in a frame and I put it on the wall and I protect it. And if my house is burning down, it's like, wife, daughter, dog picture, right? Dog before the picture. (laughs) Because he can't make it out on his own. He's old. If you've met my dog, he's old. But you get what I'm saying. And there's there's more to this analogy than this and we could dig in, but I think this serves our purpose. When, When God says he created humanity in his own image, when he put his breath into humanity and made something special, what he is saying is that human beings are like him. Because they're like him, they're precious. And he cares about them. And he knows the intimate places of their hearts. And he makes ways for them. And he goes before them and follows behind them. And he knits them together before they're even born. And he enjoys their thoughts and their words before they're even spoken. And he celebrates their futures and their victories before they even happen. And he weeps and mourns their losses and their hurts. Because they're precious to him. Now, there's really nothing that sets us apart. From the rest of creation. We are just meat and bones and atoms and molecules. And yet, there is an image that God says makes us precious. So think about the story in John 4. When our Savior, in flesh and blood, sits at this well and meets this woman who by every standard of her society was a piece of garbage. But he sees an image in her. Right? In the same way that if you were walking along and you saw a photo of your great-grandmother and it was covered in coffee stains and the corner was ripped off, you would still grab it. And you would clean it off and you would go, who the heck left this thing out? Jesus sees her and he engages her. And he engages her from a perspective of honesty and presence and love and dignity. And he puts himself out on a limb. And I want you to catch this. When he begins to speak with her and they're having casual conversation and she's weirded out 
he steps in and he cuts. And he lets her know, I know you. I really know you. I know all the stuff you don't want me to know. And if you read the story, you can feel it cut her. You can feel the psalmist going, this is too great for me. I can't, I can't do this. And, and she tries to redirect the conversation, and Jesus just zones in and says, no, I know you. I know what your heart is longing for. I know your hurts, I know your wounds, and I know what you actually long for. You actually long for life. I'd love to give it to you. He refuses to let that cut go away. He speaks the truth that he knows her. And something in that knowledge, something in that knowledge that this is my creator, He knows me. Surely he is the Messiah. Something in that knowledge flips a switch in her. And rather than changing the subject and trying to talk shop about life and theology, she runs into her village and tells everyone she can find, I have found the Messiah. He told me everything I've ever done. There's something about your creator who stamped his image in you knowing you, it actually draws us to safety. It actually draws us to life. There's a quote by Timothy Keller in his book on marriage where he says, To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well... It's a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for our difficulty. This gets at the heart of it, amen? Beloved, God knows you. He knows you fully. He knows every little detail of your life that you want no one to know. And he loves you fully. He loves you fully. He sees that image of God stamped in you. He sees the preciousness of your life and your personhood. And even though he knows every piece of you that makes you garbage, he loves you. It's precious. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Something about the image of God in you elicits such joy in Jesus that he sees you as precious and infinitely valuable and he paid the ultimate price to have you. Beloved, if this does not cut you to the core, I would encourage you to do some self-examination. Jesus sees every piece of you And you are still infinitely precious to him. There is nothing you can do or say or be that will change that. He loves you. He loves you intimately. This should elicit something in you.
And I'm going to go so far as to say if it doesn't, I don't think you fully understand this. I don't think you fully comprehend the weight of the Imago Dei stamped upon your soul if it does not elicit a response in you. And I know that's hard, like harsh like to say it that bluntly, but I mean that. God has made you uniquely precious. And all the sin in you, all the rebellion in you, all the selfishness in you, all the blasphemy within you, all the hatred and bitterness and murderous, lustful thoughts within you, everything does not remove his love from you. Does not change the fact that you are precious in his sight, that you are sacred to him, that he joyfully endures the cross for you. And beloved, if this is true of you, if this is true of the way God engages you, if the God of the universe sees you in your death and your sin and sees the precious image of God in you and falls in love with you and sees you as precious and worth sacrifice and He joyfully endures the cross on your behalf, should this not fuel the way that you engage the world around you? Can we understand that and receive that and step into the world and ignore the image of God on everyone around us? Beloved, there is no one you will pass by today. No one you will interact with today who is not precious and unique and loved in the sight of our God. There is not a single soul you will hear about on the news or social media or at the grocery store who is not loved by their creator. Beloved, do you love whom your God loves? Do you love whom your God loves? Do you you see the image of God in your enemies? in the people you fear, in the people you hate, in the people who've wronged you? Do you see the precious image of God in them, tarnished and and worn over by the death that is the curse and sin, and yet still there, totally ruined, as Calvin might say, but still there? Beloved, you will pass by no one today that is not loved and precious in the sight of Jesus. How will you love them? We're going to close out with the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians. In chapter 5, starting in verse 11. He says this, Therefore, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. For we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, 
It is for God. If we are in our right minds, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this. That one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And He died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. For even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Beloved, Jesus loves you with a love you will never understand. He knows you with a depth that is terrifying. And he loves you in spite of it. In just a few moments, I'm going to open up this space and you guys can take time to process in the way you need to. If you need to come up and take communion and celebrate Christ's body broken for you and blood poured out for you, then you do that. If you need to find one of your pastors and pray with us or speak some confession and have someone be with you when you're hurt, please come find us and do that. If you need to come pray over the church, then you come grab the microphone and you do that. If you need to get by yourself and confess to Christ, then you do that. I I want us to take a few minutes to engage what the Spirit is telling us. But beloved, hear this today. Hear this today. You are precious in the sight of your Jesus. There is nothing the curse of death and the utter and complete destruction of sin can do to remove God's image stamped in your bones. You are precious to Him as is every single one of His creation. Every single one. Beloved, go and act, go and eat, go in prayer. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.